Hi, and welcome to the 603 Podcast, where we explore the people, places, and things that create the culture of New Hampshire. This podcast educates, motivates, and discovers the stories that shape the Granite State and its impact on the country and the world. Hi, everybody. I'm extreme sports pioneer Dan Egan and your host of the 603 Podcast. I'm excited about this podcast for so many reasons. First, to share the stories. Second, to meet and get to know the people who create, share, and develop the activities, businesses, and iconic history of our state, but also to hear from you, our listeners, about the stories and ideas you think that we should share on our podcast. You can check out our website at 603podcast.com to learn more about our guests and to share with us your stories and ideas of people who you think we should interview. Our guest this episode on the 603 Podcast is Ty Gagne, acclaimed author, outdoorsman, storyteller, and sought-after speaker. Ty has written two books, Where You'll Find Me and The Last Traverse. Both are epic tales of triumph and tragedy in the White Mountains. In these books, he explores the people and the details of their decisions, as well as provides a voice of compassion and empathy for survival and death. His articles can be found in the Manchester Union Leader, as well as other outlets. He has been featured on New Hampshire Public Radio, and he is recognized as a national leader in risk management. We caught up with Ty in our studios as he was working on his third book. Ty, how you doing? Good, thanks. Great to be here with you, Dan. Yeah, you too, man. Uh, it's it's really an honor. You know, I've been uh, so many people have given me your book, uh, talk about your books, um, and you've really got so much traction uh, with your writing. And do you ever think about what it is, like why the traction? What's the appeal to what you're doing? I'm I'm really not sure, and I I don't think I have a good sense of what that traction looks like or where it resides. Um, you know, I think the White Mountains in particular mean a lot to so many people. Uh, we we pay particular attention when things go wrong there, um, and I'm really passionate about the mountains and and the beauty of the mountains and what we have here, and. I think there's a lot that we can learn about what goes on up there and how that relates to us, whether we're outdoor enthusiasts or in a workplace or or part of a team or whatever it is we're doing. Of course, your book, The Last Traverse, really, you know, these stories, they're not really uplifting, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. They're hard hard to read. Uh, They must be hard to write. Yeah, I get asked that question a lot, and I always try to remind folks that it's, yes, I'm writing about difficult subjects and tragedy, um, and, and in the case of The Last Traverse, also resilience with, with James Osborne and, and the fact that he survived and was saved. Uh, but it's not, it, it as difficult as those topics are, I always remind myself that, um, yes, this is a, a, a difficult topic, but the people who have gone through this and had a personal connection or um, lost somebody they loved or were critically injured, you know, those, that's where my focus is. is uh, it's about them and, and being empathetic to what they've gone through. And, you know, obviously when there's loss, loss of life, particularly unexpected, it's not an illness, it's a mountain accident, uh, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of times it's untreated trauma. And you're running straight into that, like headfirst into untreated trauma when you're interviewing res- people who have been on the rescues, the survivors. Have you thought about that? And and what's been your experience with dealing with that trauma? Yeah, I I, ha- I think about it a lot. Um, I am familiar with critical incident stress. Um, and I've spent hundreds of hours talking to first responders in the backcountry Um over the past five or however many years I've been doing this. And I, I think it has um, in the past gone unrecognized. And when you have a first responder in, a, in an urban environment uh, or at sea level, there's the ability to go back to the station or 
back to work and you're with the people oftentimes that you've gone through this situation with. In the case of Search and Rescue in New Hampshire, many of them are volunteers or conservation officers or forest service personnel and they deal with a critical incident and they may go back to work in their day-to-day job that and they lose connection with the people that they again have gone through this situation with. But I, I think um, and what I've seen is there's a greater recognition of crit- crit- critical incident stress, of trauma in rescuer in the rescuer community in particular. Uh, and so a lot of resources are being devoted to training, critical incident stress debriefing. Um, I know that the New Hampshire Outdoor Council just brought in a, a speaker on trauma and stress for search and rescue personnel, uh, which was really well attended. Um, and so I think there's a greater recognition for it now than there has been in the past. Yeah, within the quote-unquote professional uh, side of it, right? Particularly, you know, like you pointed out, these people are volunteers. They're giving their time, um, but still professionals. A lot of them are mountaineers and, and gone that way. But a lot of the untreated trauma is in the families. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that can't lose sight of that as well. Um Many times, it, family members that I've talked to, um, some of these stories are decades old and the, and the pain is still there. The hurt is still there. I don't think it ever goes away. I think people just learn how to manage and cope with it. Um, you know, hopefully there's counseling services that are available to, to them. But oftentimes, you know, as we know, there's the tragedy uh, or the critical incident and the family is dealing with this within the family or, or with, with friends and their, and those professional services aren't there. And tell me about your background as a lover of the white mountains. What age did you get into it and how did you discover the whites? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we had the obligatory uh, class trips into the white mountains in, in elementary school, which I loved Musilak, Chikorua, um, all of those. But I think, Probably the watershed moment for me was when I was introduced to rock climbing by my middle school industrial arts teacher, Ron Reynolds, who you may know, um, lives in the North Country. And from the moment I did that first terrifying rappel, um, I was kind of hooked. And um, he's still my climbing partner and mentor today, again, decades and decades later. Um, He's the person I'm most comfortable going out into the backcountry with and taught me to ice climb, taught me winter mountaineering. And yeah, just, I'm so grateful for that connection and that experience. And that, did that lead you directly into the whites and the presidential and bagging peaks doing the traverse? What was the hook beyond that? Yeah, I've never, um, I think, you know, doing the 48, 4,000 footers has not been a box I've wanted or had a desire to check. I, and I'm not taking away from the people who pursue that because I think getting after it and going after goals is awesome. Uh, but I, I, there are my, I have my spots in the white mountains that I love particular mountains, particularly the Northern presidentials, Franconia notch, um, Crawford notch for ice climbing. And, um, there's plenty there for me, uh, plenty of challenge and, um, I can get outside of my comfort zone pretty quick. So, yeah. Yeah. You really can. And I think one of the things that people don't realize about the white mountains is the weather conditions in small areas change, right? I mean, Franconia has its own weather patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pinkham has its own weather patterns. Uh, and Crawford, to some extent, too, down into Bretton Woods is slightly different. Uh, sometimes that's all overlooked, I think, uh, in general when people are heading off. Yeah, you can be approaching, and I'm sure you've done this many times, approaching Franconia Notch from the north or south, and it's a bluebird day, and you get into the notch and it's sleeting. And visibility is awful. Um, and on the flip side, you could be uh, going into the notch and thinking everything's fine, but you get up above tree line, and like you said, it's a completely different climate, different situation. And I think that's what makes the White Mountains in particular so appealing, but also so dangerous is um, is the unpredictability that comes with it on any given day. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and you know. My joke in in, in this winter and the ski season is there's like 
six or seven perfect wildcat days, six or seven perfect cannon days. And if you miss them, they're gone. You're down to five days, four days, three days. They don't come around very often. The rest of the time, it's windy. It's, there's a lot happening up there. There isn't. Like you could be at a ski area in one part of the North Country and having an awesome bluebird day. Um, and you could have a friend of yours on an, in another ski area having an awful time just because that's – the weather is so um, dramatic between locations. You know, in, in my adventures – out to sea and in the mountains, there's times where it's so tranquil. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. And you're looking out into the Pemi wilderness or off the seacoast and you think, wow, what a peaceful place. But when it turns, it's relentless. And it feels like it's never going to end. Can you talk about that situation, the wind, and when it's just so relentless and you have so far to go what that feels like. Yeah. And I think um, what people underestimate about the wind in particular is um, the effect that it has on you physically, but also the effect that it has on your ability to maintain a course direction and how quickly we can get turned just by the wind um, and find ourselves off trail down into a drainage or, or wherever, wherever we might be, but also just how incredibly exhausting that can be. You're talking sustained 40, 50 over the course of hours higher. It really has an impact on you, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the 33rd anniversary of uh, a trip where we lost 11 in Russia. And what I always tell people is it was the wind that turned us around. We had to go directly into it, but over time we turned our back to it. And we would fix that every time we realized it. But subconsciously, it kept happening. Yeah. And, there, you know, we've seen instances where people will use it as a navigation tool, right? They think, okay, if I turn my back to it and I follow it, but what people, I think what people don't realize is that every step you take, um, every so many feet you go, you're getting that much further off of your orientation, right? Especially if you don't have a compass. So, yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. It right? is. It's brutal. And then when you add visibility or the lack of visibility to that, it's maddening. Yeah. Yeah. Wind, visibility, precipitation, uh, it's it, it all combines and, and can create a pretty awful, awful experience for sure. And, you know, I, I we had an artist that was doing a painting uh, for a conference we were running in the in up in uh, the Whites. And she came from out west. And we were t touring her around to get a, a feeling for for the White Mountains. And when we brought her up to Bretton Woods and she looked across from the Mid-Mountain Lodge to Mount Washington and the Presidential Ridge, she just said to herself, oh, they go this way. They're long, you know, they're horizontal. She was used to summits yeah. and peaks. And that traversing is kind of unique, isn't it, here in the White Mountains? Yeah, I think it is. And I, where we sometimes see people get into trouble is the commitment that's required on a traverse, whether you're doing that nine-plus-mile loop hike in, across the beautiful Franconia Ridge or you're doing a northern presidential traverse or a full, you know, 22-plus-mile traverse. Um, and I think we know how remote – it still is there. Yes, it's it's accessible. We can see it. Um, it's at max sixty two hundred feet, and but there's just a lot of terrain up there. And there's again, it's the weather can be unpredictable. So when you get out there, you're really committed uh, when you're on a ridge line. And again, we've seen instances of uh, of tragedy and crisis up there on those long commitments. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing. And it, it's, I think often that's a, a characteristic that either we take for granted or we don't think about that our mountains, uh, there's a lot of traversing on rock, right? It, it's granite. It's a granite state. Uh, and I always remind people in the winter, the first thing that forms on the rock is ice. Mm -hmm. It's slip. Yeah. Yeah. And traction's important. And again, I, you know, I've talked to people over the years who 
want to share their experiences and talk about them as I'm talking about others and, you know, sleet in July uh, in the White Mountains. And I was wearing shorts and I had a T-shirt. I only brought a really thin windbreaker uh, and all of a sudden I'm dealing with sleet and low visibility and it can turn quickly. We'll be right back. Mad River Coffee House, the best of 603. Located just off of Exit 28 off Highway 93 in Campton, New Hampshire. Open 6 to 6. Voted the best cup of coffee north of Concord. Start and end your adventure here. Online at madrivercoffeeroasters.com. North Country's Center of the Arts at Jean's Playhouse in Lincoln, New Hampshire presents award-winning Broadway-style plays, musicals, and children's theater, as well as comedians, cover bands. Get your tickets today at jeansplayhouse.com. And what was the incident for you that made you think, oh, I'm vulnerable here? Was there a time, was there an incident where you were like, I shouldn't have made those decisions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one in particular that I think was pretty defining for me, February 2008. It was actually a week before James Osborne and Fred Fredrickson um, got into trouble on Franconia Ridge. And I was up there with two people I didn't know. I uh, was invited to go along, really wanted to do the traverse. And had been up on Franconia Ridge in really bad weather before, but who was I with? I was with my climbing partner. So I had that high level of trust. Um, I had the fitness level, but in February, 2008, it was really a low trust environment because I just didn't know them. Um, my fitness level was awful. And so the tie that presented at the trailhead that Saturday morning, um, shouldn't have been there. I should not have been there. And multiple times throughout the course of the, the day in the Traverse, I wanted to call it. I wanted to turn around, and I, I just couldn't bring myself to speak up and learned a ton from that. It's an interesting dynamic uh, decision-making amongst a group. What was the dynamic that was keeping you from speaking up? Um, I, well, I, I, I would go back to my teenage years when you're – you're going along to get along. You want to be accepted into the group. And acceptance is a big part of um, of risk and risk tolerance. And I just didn't want – I was an invited guest and I didn't want to do anything to um, impact the day that they had set out for themselves. And so I just went and I just followed and I knew it, I knew I shouldn't have been there. I didn't want to be there, but I stayed there. And I think – you know, as if we think about a team dynamic, as my risk tolerance, um, my comfort level diminishes, as my confidence diminishes, my trust in myself and, and the team I'm with drops. And the longer I stay in that environment in a passive way, um, the more liability I'm creating for myself and the people I'm with. And that's can happen on a ridge. It can happen at work. It's the same stuff. And that's what happened to me. And the result of that? Uh, bruised ego, uh, lots of reflection and self-criticism. Um, got through it, suffered greatly. Um, but I have no regrets because um, I kind of found my limit that day. I I grinded past it. So I think that we, we learn resilience from that. Uh, but also just the lessons I learned about myself um, – about being a member of a team and what that, the responsibility that comes with that. And that's, I think that's been a big driver for me with the work that I'm doing professionally in risk management in New Hampshire for local governments and, and the writing and the, and the talks I'm doing. Did you ever recap or with the group afterwards? Yeah. So this is, you know, conflict in New Hampshire takes a while to, uh, to, <laughs> to resolve. So this is no joke. Um, so I wrote I wrote an essay about that experience and team dynamics, and that essay ultimately became the um, the prologue of the first book, Where You'll Find Me. And I changed the names. I went hiking with them, got through it, had that adrenaline rush after I was safe sitting in the snow looking back at the ridge, like, oh, that was awesome. But then in the days that followed, like, wow, that was that was not good judgment on my part. 
Uh, never really didn't see them again. But once the book came out, um, you know, they figured out that it was them and it was me and it was that day in particular. And uh, I did a book talk over, I think it was in Tamworth. And one of them um, attended the book talk and actually wrote over with my wife and I, which was which was really awkward, right? It's, it's a small state. Uh, it's a long story of how that happened. But um, I'm getting ready to do the talk in the basement level of the of the library. And and he approaches me and he, he just has this look on his face of, I, I think it's a, a little bit of remorse, I guess. And he said, I had no idea you were in trouble. And I said, it's, it's not on you. I didn't tell you I was in trouble and I should have. Well, that, that was 10 years to the month, um, February of 2018, that that conversation took place, which is really quite ironic. But uh, that's how long it took to, to talk about it with the, the person I was in that situation with. So, yeah. I mean, that's a good example of unresolved trauma. It takes time, right? Yeah. And uh, often it presents itself when we're ready to talk about it. Have you found yourself uh, invited on a hike or a climb because you were the expert and then, but you didn't go thinking, like you didn't realize that's why they asked you for your knowledge and for your background. You thought you were just going on a hike with friends or something like that. And then it turns out, what should we do? They look to you like that? Has that happened? Yeah. Well, I think I've been pretty careful about who I go with and I, I have my climbing partner and I kind of, I stay with that. I, I, you know, I, when I've gone out with family or friends, I think sometimes just by default, people might look to me, but I'm not, those are generally pretty straightforward, just outings with the, with family and friends and nothing too, too gnarly. So yeah, I can't really say I've been in that situation where, where that role has been reversed. Yeah, that that's happened to me a yeah. lot. Uh, you know, at the top of a mountain or about to drop in or ski descent, and somebody go, "I shouldn't be here. Will you help me?" And I'm like, "It's my day off." You yeah, know, right. Like, you right. know, I, I'm just, you know, and I have, of course, I think as professionals, that's our responsibility, right? But it's uh, it kind of throws you into a tizzy, or sometimes other my situation, other people have taken advantage of that. Um, so I, I think that's always interesting when people come for information. Uh, and I know as an expert, sometimes I'm thinking they're not receiving it either. You know, they've come to ask the question, but they don't want to hear the answer. Yeah. Because uh, it's not serving their purpose. Yeah. I think, you know, aligning with Dan Egan on, on, a, ski, on a ski trip can, can bring a lot of reward, right? Yeah. But it also potentially brings a lot of risk for Dan yeah. <laughs> and the people that are with Dan. So, yeah. 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 So, you know, it's, I don't think a lot of people uh, understand what you do in your professional world. So tell us about yeah. that. So my full-time job is um, I work for a public entity risk pool. So we do, I'd call them insurance type coverage, workers comp, property liability, um, unemployment comp for school, municipal and county government throughout the state of New Hampshire. Um, we're, uh, structured by state statute that allows public entities to pool their risk. And so along with managing their claims and doing risk consulting, we do a, a lot of education and training around leadership, decision-making, um, human resources management, um, general safety topics. And so I think in, I, I'm not going to say I think, I know that I think my professional life informs my writing and my writing and research informs my professional life. And to have been able to blend the two in certain ways toward hopefully helping people has been a pretty rewarding part of this whole process. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to have it line up like that. The articles you wrote and the essays and the blogs on the emotional rescue. Yeah. Um, fascinating on a a lot of levels, uh, both people were out there on their own. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are heading off into the mountains alone. Um, some will tell you they're seeking solace or they feel alive, mm -hmm. but it's dangerous. Talk about 
going alone, the benefits of it and the downside to it? Yeah, I, I get asked to take a position on that quite often, my thoughts on it. And I enjoy solo backcountry experiences. Um, I like going out with with other people too. I think there's benefits to both. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. You should or should not do certain things. I, I, what I would say is that if we go back to my situation in February of 2008 when I was with two other people, we could make the argument that I was generating as much, if not more, risk for myself in that group. Um, whereas had I been alone, maybe I would not have gone that day or I, maybe I would have stopped at Treeline. I, I don't want to speculate on that, but um, I think there can be just as much risk in pairs or groups. Um, and we know there is risk in going by yourself. And I think self-awareness is really, really important. Um, having a plan in place, being prepared, communicating where you're going to be and when, um, having a contingency plan is, those are all important aspects. Again, I think whether you're with people or not, but, um, I would not tell people not to go by themselves. I think those are individual decisions. Um, but there's a responsibility that goes with that as well. Yeah. In this particular case, uh, the woman followed some tracks uh, in a way that she recognized wouldn't have been the way out, um, ended up saving this person's life. Tell us the, in a nutshell that story because it's fascinating. Yeah. Pam Bales, who at the time was a, a volunteer search and rescue member for PEMI Valley Search and Rescue Team, but was out just for a day hike on her own, uh, not not uh, for any kind of team call out or anything like that, but just had been missing the mountains. And Pam had a ton of experience, particularly in the presidential range and with the Traverse. And for that day, she had uh, set out to go up uh, Jewel Trail across Gulf Side and then to come down uh, Amanusik Ravine was in the process of going across Gulf side was um, in the, was bailing out essentially had decided I'm not going to try to summit Mount Washington. I'll, I'll drop down on the lower slope and uh, uh, take West side trail over to Lake of the clouds in Amanusik. And as she's in the process of just calling it, ending her day early and shortening her loop hike, uh, she notices these footprints in the snow that were sneaker tracks. It was October. It was full on winter up above tree line um, and as she's continuing along and following these, still planning to end her day early, the the sneaker tracks take this left turn towards Great Gulf uh, in the area of Mount Clay, and she has a decision to make. Um, and so she elects to follow the track. She had um, called out for, got no response, said, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow these. Something doesn't feel right. Her instincts were kicking in, follows them a short distance and finds a a gentleman um, essentially uh, sitting against a rock, um, shorts, um, sneakers on, very, very light windbreaker, and in the in the stages of hypothermia, unable to take care of himself, not really responsive. And so that search and rescue piece kicks in, and Pam always packed for herself, and if she found somebody else along the trail, great call. And basically gets him rewarmed to the point over the course of an hour where she can almost force march him in a in a supportive and compassionate way down the mountain. Does so, um, arrives there early evening, goes through, rewarms his clothes on the heater of her car. He, um, he gets in his car and he leaves. Um, she never hears from him again. She thinks, unprepared hiker, um, hey, thanks for the thank you kind of thing, abrupt de departure, and goes about her business, goes home that night, kind of sends a debriefing email out to members of her team. Here's what happened to me. I'm so glad I had the training. I'm so glad I had the equipment, the extra equipment. And about a week later, the president of the team uh, receives a $100 bill in the mail for the team and a letter from a man who Pam had named John up on the mountain because she didn't know him. And he had indicated why he was there, and he was up there to take his to take his own life. And she interrupted that and made a difference for him. And he had gone back to where he lived and was seeking counseling and help. And pretty pretty amazing story. It's really uh, serendipitous story. It's a, amazing. 
uh, connection uh, that two people find each other. Yeah. Uh, and that the professional, in this case, followed the tracks and, and didn't make a selfish decision for her own route or her own day. She sacrificed and risked her own life to do that. She did. She did. And I think it speaks volumes about the selflessness, particularly within the search and rescue community. Um, yes, I was writing a story out of the mountains, but for me, it was a what was more important was to talk about the mental health aspect of all of this. And as you mentioned earlier, trauma and and stress and, you know, that we need to look out for each other. You know, coming out of COVID, you know, triggered by COVID is uh, people want to live on the outside. They, they want to go on these adventures and there's been a whole new, you know, really reinvigorating of adventure and people redefining their lives and, and how they work and how they play and it's everywhere. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of unnecessary risk. I'm seeing a lot of young, less experienced people. We've always seen it in Tuckermans, but we saw it on full display this past spring, a uh, snowboarder falling into the, you know, the waterfall area, mm-hmm. another guy flipping over it, uh, the social media moment of it all, uh, people posting what they're doing and where they are without knowing where they are and the risk of it. Uh, how's that factoring into what we're seeing and the accidents that we're seeing in the woods? We'll be right back. Waterville Valley is New Hampshire's family resort. If you're looking for an authentic, independent ski resort with local charm, elite snow conditions, look no further. Ranked the number one ski resort in the East by Condé Nast Traveler, Waterville offers year-round activities, including 265 acres of alpine skiing, lift service mountain biking, golf, country skiing, food festivals, live outdoor concerts, and more. All kids under five ski-free when you purchase an adult pass. Learn more at Waterville. Well, we talked about this earlier. I I do think acceptance is a big driver. Um, You know, if I'm active on social media and I've got a GoPro on or I'm um, holding my phone and filming my descent or whatever this adventure is that I've set out on, what am I seeking when I do that in many cases? I want a like, right? And then I want as many or shares or whatever it might be. And that is a motivator for some people, um, particularly in a, in a social media environment. And I do, you know, I think having that sense of adventure, getting out, getting after it, um, getting out of your comfort zone, all that's all good. I mean, I, I would not tell people never take risks because, where, I mean, Dan, where, where would you be if you had never taken them, right? Um, and look at the body of work you've created. At the same time, I think there there is a self-awareness and responsibility, personal responsibility level that comes with all of this. And um, I, I think we can sometimes overestimate our ability and underestimate just how steep that Tuckerman headwall is and using that as an example. And that's where we see people run into trouble is when they don't really recognize who they are when they present in that environment and what that environment can have entail for us. Of course, we're on the 603 podcast. We're here with Ty Gagne, author, speaker, and lover of the outdoors. Uh, and really, but more importantly, I think you're an expert in risk-taking and analyzing risk. And, and, and I think you're trying to do that in a non-judgmental way to present the facts, so to raise the awareness. Is that sort of your motivation is to educate through awareness? That's a big part of why I'm doing what I do. Uh, Again, I think the professional life also informs the personal writing side of me and vice versa. But I I approach all of this without judgment because I've been there. I've made those mistakes. And but I also think when we judge um, and which can be very easy to do when we're down here and we have access to a keyboard and something bad's happening somewhere else or up there, it's really easy to armchair that thing. But I think when we judge, we stop, the learning process stops. We are no longer open to additional information or perspective. We don't want to take in information that might counter 
this opinion or position that we've reached on something. And so I, what I try to do when I write about these things is present the information in a way that um, hopefully people can read it objectively and think about and reflect on their own mishaps and missteps they've taken, whether in the mountains or just as part of life. And maybe find some empathy there uh, for what that person and ultimately a family and, and a circle of friends is, is going through because of this tragedy or this um, incident that's gone wrong. And how do we take those things and apply it to our day-to-day? So I get to talk to, um, just as part of work, combined with the writing, I get to talk to high school students and middle school students about decision-making and risk. And it's been a really neat extension of the work. Um, I do full-time because I'm in school districts that are members of the organization that I work for. And um, I I think there's just a lot we can learn about ourselves and about why we do the things that we do. Absolutely. You know, and I think there's a lot to unpack just there, right? In the non-judgment, um, but when talking to, you know, sort of the Red Bull generation, yeah. the X game, you know, this younger population that is taking a lot of risk in a lot of areas of their lives. Uh, and that's the age you do it because consequence is the furthest thing you're thinking about. Um, you know, I think it's important to kind of try and corral that you know one of the things that i see is the bucket list or you know i want to do this before a certain time and i think that creates a lot of unnecessary pressure to do things you may not have done or it hurts wisdom a bit mm-hmm. you know this past fall we saw the tragedy of the the girl in, in franconia who was a, her bucket list to click off all the peaks uh, it was seemingly still early enough in the season to get up there and bag, I think, two or three for her that day. But she was, and she, a lot of the press said she was experienced. I don't think she was experienced. She, she certainly wasn't prepared as an experience. And I think how we classify and how we tell ourselves what our level of experience is matters. Yeah. And I, so I think, you know, in the case of Emily Sotelo, um, and Emily was one of of three at the start of the winter season who who perished tragically. And my heart breaks for all of the family and the friends that um, that knew them. And it it really rattled the outdoor community. I think with when you had the succession of tragedy leading up to a season that really was just getting started. But I think in the case of Emily, and I, and I've I've spent time talking with her mom, and um, I'm not talking out of school because I think her mother Oliveira is really on a mission to try to increase safety and awareness um, around mountain risk. Um, but I think in, in an example like this where you have, you've set a goal and you're very focused on it and, and you have an itinerary that really everything has to go right. And Emily's not the first person to have, have done that, that most people kind of get away with it. It's when they, when we don't, uh, that's when the reflection and the, criticism and all of the and the quarterbacking begins right but i think when we have a goal or an itinerary and we're so focused on it um we lose some sense of awareness of what's going on around us and we we lock into it we anchor to it and unless we are willing to modify or adapt our approach um as conditions change or as i change or whatever it is i think we're really heading toward trouble because we get into that situation where we're fixated on that goal. We're moving toward it, but we're not aware of weather changes, the time of day where the sun is in relation to the, um, to sunset and all of those kinds of factors play into this. And so I think that's, you know, we saw that in, in Emily's situation. It was very, widely publicized why she was there, what she had planned to do, and and it got away from her, tragically. But there's much to be learned from Emily and what happened. That's where the legacy lies, I think. We'll be right back. 
Ski Fanatics is the ski shop of the White Mountains, where skiing isn't just something you do. It's something you are. Located off of Exit 28 on Highway 93 in Campton, New Hampshire, whether you ski, snowboard, snowshoe, hike, kayak, canoe, stand-up paddleboard, or camp, stop by Ski Fanatics this season for expert advice, professional gear fitting, and this summer, don't forget about the Ski Fanatics tubing shuttle on the PEMI. Check them out online at skifanatics.net. What do you think about this saying? You know, I hear it a lot in the ski community when we lose skiers. Uh, they die doing what they love. Yeah, I think Emily would prefer to be alive, right? Um, I, I'm, I understand the solace that can come with that for a grieving family member. Uh, but I, I would have to believe that the people that, died pursuing their passions would still like to be alive pursuing their passions yeah the shane mcconkey movie um his friend uh says in the last scene of the movie uh shane would be really upset to learn that he died yeah i i i I agree yeah i agree and uh you know I, i sport is designed to enhance our life add value uh drive a deeper understanding of the world around us and our place in it. And I think that's one of the key messages that we need to funnel into the social media generation, that that this is all designed to enhance your life over time. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm a big advocate for getting out of our comfort zone. I've, I've grown a lot from discomfort. Uh, I think all of us have when we take time to reflect on it. But I think there's a progression that comes with that, and that is um, experiences in the backcountry don't necessarily equate to backcountry experience, okay? And and so I just think there's this path that we take. If, if there's a way to get out of your comfort zone and manage the risks associated with that, and that's through mentorship, and I, I'm... I'm in my, you know, I'm a little ways away from 60 years old, but I still have a a mentor in the mountains and I, I will never lose fact, uh, sight of the fact that I don't have all the information. I don't have all the answers. I, I go into these situations with a lot of humility. Um, and I think when we can approach these things, wanting to grow, wanting to learn and recognizing that growth and learning is a lifelong process uh, and that there's a lot of wisdom out there um if if we just seek it out we're just in a much better place to be doing these things for well into our 70s 80s and beyond yeah it's one of the beauties of sport right and uh mentorship is huge you know i've been spending some time talking about sort of the individual side of it uh, but you know, you and I both know as professionals, a lot of the mistakes happen with professionals. And yeah. and one of the things we look at in, in the avalanche world is complacency. People who have been there before, skied that run before, saw see tracks on that run, uh, it looks safe. They, they, they survived it. I'm going to go. Uh, and then the accident happens. Talk about complacency amongst professionals and the guides and what a role that plays into risk and how to combat it. Yeah, I think in the case of avalanches, I think we know that the data would tell us that uh, many people who find themselves in an avalanche have had avalanche training, right? Prevention awareness. Um, And so, you know, you could make the argument, the more we know, the more dangerous we might become. And I think where complacency comes in, in particular is, and I use this example when talking with um, teenagers that, and I'll say, you know, how many of you drove to school today? And you'll get hands. I'm like, all right, how many of you sent a text or read one while you were driving to school? And there are some brave souls who will raise their hand. And I'm not judging that. I'm I'm trying to use it as a teachable moment. But when we do things that carry some level of consequence or risk and nothing bad happens, um, we'll do it again. So I said, how many of you find that you're texting in the same location every day on that drive. It's the day that somebody's crossing at a crosswalk or there's a dog in the road or a tree down. 
something in that system is different. That's when we get bit. And so I think in the case of backcountry risk and particularly in ter- avalanche terrain, you know, the more we go out and nothing goes wrong, we start to normalize that. And so we don't differentiate between the snow conditions or the experience, the awesome epic experience I had last Wednesday. And now I'm here this next Wednesday, something's different. Um, either the people I'm with are different. I'm with different people. Maybe I'm distracted or maybe there's be- there's wind slab that's built over the course of the week, um, which is a regular occurrence in the white mountains. And so I think it's, it's recognizing that those past experiences, we develop wisdom, experience, expertise, but it's also having the humility in the moment that we find ourselves in to remain aware and recognize that we don't always have it dialed in and going through a risk assessment of self, of terrain, of weather, all of it. Absolutely. And and all really good. You know, the situations change, but that idea that we got away with it, uh, that can you can look at mountain biking. You can look at a lot of different things to add that that up. You know, what I always tell people is, you know, I have two jobs. One, to provide you with the best day of your life. That's the goal. Awesome day. And to think about the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. You know, you can think about having the best day, but you're paying me to think about what happens if the worst happens. And they don't see that as part of the decision making. They think you're holding the back or you're not going. But when you understand the worst case scenario, then you better understand sort of decision. What do you, what do you say? I agree. I, I What you're saying reminds me of Conrad Anker. He's a world-renowned alpinist. Um, I have so much admiration for him. And if you if you look at his risk management process when he's going planning to head out, he what he does is he thinks of the worst case scenario and then he plans backward from there. And I think that's brilliant um, because you're just in a much – you're in a position of being much better prepared for that environment that you're heading into if you're thinking about what could possibly go wrong, not getting so fixated on it that it takes away from the experience or – distracts you so much that it actually causes, creates more risk. But just knowing that you've done that planning, that preparation, have that contingency plan in place, I think is really important. You know, Ty, you've uh, made your living here in the Granite State. Uh, You know, you still recreate here and and find plenty of adventure. Uh, And this is the 603 podcast. What is it that you love about the Granite State? Well, I've lived here my entire life, and I've gone to other places to visit, but I there's something about New Hampshire that I think is really special. You, um, I think the people, I think there's a lot of pride in living here. I think you can be at the you can be at the um, ocean, and two hours later you could be heading up toward four, five, six thousand feet. You. Again, the lakes, the mountains, the rivers, it's all here. Uh, And I just think there's really something special about it. And we talk about it being a small state. You get to know a lot of people. And I think that's just a really neat, neat thing. Can I turn it around on on you for a minute? Because you're (laughs) like, you're a pioneer in extreme sports. And this is your first podcast. And people are probably going to be getting to know you through the process can can you think of an instance where you were in an environment where you you knew you shouldn't be, but you were there anyway, and you went anyway? And what what did you take away from that? Can you share that with the your listeners? Yeah, you know, I it's <laughs> you know I'm a Kevin Costner fan. I don't know how many people admit that, but I am a Kevin Costner fan. And uh, in Dances with Wolves, he he says, you know, uh, in the movie. So far, most of my success has been based on failure. Mm. And I, I think that failure teaches us a lot, that we gain a lot. And, you know, I've made in the course of my professional career a lot of bad decisions with clients, uh, put people at risk uh, on a perfect day that I thought was going to be epic. And those experiences have shaped me. Um, and often it's, you know, it looks good in front of you, but 3,000 feet below you, it's not good. 
So on a ski descent, that's, you know, five, 6,000 vert can be amazing, but it needs to be amazing all the way to the bottom. And what I say in a lot of my talks and corporate uh, presentations is we're only as good as our last decision. There's no redos. Mm. And in today's world, there's a lot of people that want redos. And in the real world, you're only as good as your last decision. There's no redos. And you have to base all future decisions off of the last one because we're not climbing back up. We're heading down. So how do we mitigate risk uh, in those situations? And there's several things you have to be able to do in those situations. And one is motivate the people you're leading. Keep them calm. Keep them positive. Keep them listening. Keep them acting in a way that is safe for everybody. So one, the group dynamic and the leadership role is crucial. And two, those decisions that are cascading forward as as you move uh, are really crucial. So I think in this world, you know, of like social media and moments and people wanting to have epic experiences, my comment to people is, hey, can we jump off that that cliff? Can we jump off the cornice? Can we ski this run? And often I'll say, do you want a great moment or a great week? Yeah. You know, we, this is the point you get to decide. Yeah, you can jump off that cliff. But if you blow your knee or cause a slide or something, we're all, at, you know, you're putting us at risk. Yeah, I think, and I think you make a really good point about from the skier's perspective, it's we're up here, but 3,000 feet down, what does that look like? And having to think about that. And if we transition that to hiking and climbing, Yes, it's good at the trailhead, but what is it going to be like at 4,000 feet? And guess what? The summit, it we're only halfway at that point. Are we thinking about how long it's going to take us to get back? Are we factoring in the time of day? Do we have a headlamp? Do we have the 10 essentials or whatever that might be? And recognizing that it's not, these aren't moments that, like you just said, they're, it's a, these are processes. And the idea is to to fully experience and appreciate the process rather than just this this fixed destination that we've we've set for ourselves because it feels good. Yeah, you know, and again bringing it back to, you know, avalanche in my world, you know, it's a scale of 5. So when people say, "Oh, it's only an avalanche risk of 3." Wait, that's still above average. Yeah. You know, and so you know, two is somewhat safe and one is extreme, you know. So, you know, the idea, well, it's pretty good. It's, yeah, it's just three. It's not a four and it's not five out of five. So I think your perspective on risk is super important um, and to understand that. Yeah, um, and I think, as you said, with that rating, it may be a one, but you you want to manage your confidence because it may, avalanche risk may be super low, but there might be something else here that I'm just not paying attention to because now I've been told it's rated a one. And so I'm going to be, it's, this is going to be bomber. It's going to be great. Yeah. Of um, course, wind loading yeah. and all that. And, you know, we, I brought up the question of uh, solo travel versus group travel for a reason, because it is a double-edged sword, as you described. Often, you know, back in, you know, my career, we would ski things alone because it was just safer. One, I'm only putting myself at risk, but two, I'm only putting my weight on the slope. Mm -hmm. uh, and the super dangerous stuff we did alone. Um, but that was a calculated risk we made prior to going. Uh, but for the majority, you know, group dynamics and having a leader is super important for the decision-making. But as I've written about myself many times, Family and friends are the hardest to navigate, you know. In the mountains and in your kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, again, you bringing up all these really good points around leadership. And I think it leadership is, yes, there's a planning and there's a guiding aspect to that. But it's also there's a responsibility to create an environment where people who are in the group if they are feeling uncomfortable or uncertain, that they, they feel comfortable and safe enough to bring those concerns forward and that it's not all top-down telling. Um, 
Because again, I think when, if you have a passive participant, there's greater risk in that because we're not, they might be seeing something that you don't, that might be an opportunity to teach or guide. And I think when we get too focused on lead um, and what's out in front of us, we're not really paying attention to the people that are taking up the rear and and that we're responsible for. Yeah. And that's where listening is key. And I agree. I uh, just coming back from the Alps, I was over there for six weeks and, you know, I had one, one day where somebody said they didn't want to hike. And I, I just filed that away because that right there, that took a lot of dissents off of the, we would have to ski something, but hike out or hike up or, you know, whatever it is. And so I just filed that away as we're not going. I wasn't going to convince him to hike. If he didn't want to hike. Now for the rest of the group that was willing to hike, they got to live with that because you know, that's putting us all at risk if we get a guy that can't hike or unwilling to hike or is too slow. We missed the timing of the slope, all that cascades. So I don't really call it out. I didn't make a big – I just filed it away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the the leadership is the listening. And that's so important, right, that that they're, he felt safe to say if he didn't want to hike. And I just – we just moved on and had a great day. Yeah. 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 And there's those coachable moments too, where you sense that discomfort. And I think there's something great about helping people work through that and giving them the experience that they're, you know, they're seeking too, which, yeah. is, which is cool. Yeah. So yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, and so tell us, how do people find you and uh, how do they learn more about you and your books and your writing? Um, well, if the, if they're interested in the books, I, I would strongly encourage people to Go to the, go to the local library in New Hampshire. I've I think I've been to I don't know fifty or sixty of them in the past few years, and the live public our public libraries are awesome, and our independent bookstores. If if you're seeking to purchase mine or anybody else's or yours or it, you know the independent bookstores are they're really crucial parts of our community fabric, and um, I think it can just be really easy to click and order. But there's something about supporting local business and and they and they care so much about the written word and and uh, the creative process and and are super supportive. I think to artists. Um, my website address is fullconditionsnh.com. I have an Instagram account, full condition at fullconditionsnh. But I'm, I think you'll be disappointed if you visit it because I'm just not, I'm not active on it. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. And yeah. what's next for you? What's next for Ty Gagne? Um, well, I'm. You know, I love I love my professional life. Um, I have a family that's growing, which is just is awesome. And um, I, I'm working on a new book project and, and hoping to have that uh, wrapped up this year. It's, an, it's a story out of the presidentials in winter. And, um, and I think it's a particularly important one. And what's that process for you, uh, the right? I, I've been thinking about that a lot for you. Do you is it a, a motion? You think now's the time I'm going to write it? Is it a discipline? How do you do it? I th- it's evolved for me over the course of the the different writing projects I've done. Uh, I've I've tried to improve on it each time. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make it easier. Um, it's 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 hard to explain. It's it it's a lot of research. I do I I really focus on research and wanting to get it right and really out of respect for the people I'm I'm writing about whether it's members of the search and rescue community or the the families or the individuals that are directly impacted by these events. Um, but yeah, the, the, the process, I mean, I, I think if, if we wait for inspiration to hit where we could be waiting forever. So there are times that you just, you have to sit down and grind. And I like to write early mornings before work. Um, I do a little weekend writing um, sometimes in the evening or I'm interviewing or doing some kind of research. And I think, you know, the web gives us the ability to, to do a lot of those things. And, you know, you can stack phone calls when you're in the car. And um, so you just find ways to do it and recognizing that when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else and just being really mindful of that. Absolutely. Um, it's important work you're doing. I, I really congratulate you for doing that and, and doing it in a sincere and thoughtful way to all the research that does go into it. Um, 
is it healing? Is it healing for you? Is it healing for the families? Is it healing for the rescue folks? That's a great question. Uh, let's start with um, the families. I, it has been my experience in sitting with, um, with victims and with the uh, families of victims who didn't survive. It's been my experience thus far that when people understand why I'm doing what I'm doing and trying to help. Um, and I'm not, I don't look at myself as affecting change because I think it's, it's really up to the reader to take the information and make decisions around what they're going to do with it. But I think when, when people, the people I'm working with understand that it's, I'm trying to educate, raise awareness, um, lower risk, help us better understand ourselves and decisions. I, I do feel they want to contribute to that kind of effort. There is a, I think healing's too strong a word or position to me to take, but I think there's something to that um, that's comforting to them knowing that maybe their insights, their input might help prevent something in the future. And then I think with the rescuers, um, again, I think being able to talk through these things, recount their experiences, um, and, and I have great empathy for everyone I'm sitting with, regardless of their role or the impact that it's had on them. It, I, again, I think the memories are there. They might be tucked away, but bringing them out and talking about them and talking through why they happen. And again, from a rescuer's perspective, to hopefully provide insight that might help people. And I do try to infuse a lot of rescuer expertise because they have so much mountain experience. Yeah, and I, I think for me, I mean, we all have our stuff, and um, there's something pretty therapeutic about the creative process for me, for sure. And and spending time with people who I have great respect for and learning from them. You know, here in New Hampshire, we have a real history and tradition of volunteerism. Uh, fire departments, yeah. uh, search and rescue. And I would argue maybe some of the top search and rescue in the country right here in, in New Hampshire and the White Mountains and a lot of expertise and a lot of experience. Just talk about who makes up that community and yeah. how important they are. Because it's awesome. And it's, it's not hidden, uh, but it's humble. So I get to spend a lot of time with first responders, both at sea level as part of my professional life, um, and then with the search and rescue community as part of my passion for writing and sharing stories. And I agree with you. I think New Hampshire in particular has a really unique and special um, arrangement around backcountry search and rescue full-time um, New Hampshire Fish and Game Conservation Officers. They have about a 17-person advanced search and rescue team. The U.S. Forest Service has the Snow Rangers. Um, and then you have that. all of that is augmented um, by volunteers, uh, the volunteer community, New Hampshire Army National Guard, New Hampshire Civil Air Patrol, uh, New Hampshire Canine Search and Rescue. And then you have these multiple ground teams that are volunteer-based. And I think the beauty of this is the selflessness and the quiet way in which they do their work, seeking no recognition or attention. Uh, they go out there because they recognize that they're all susceptible to running into trouble in the backcountry, and they, and there's some comfort knowing that if they get into trouble while they're out recreating individually, um, that someone's going to be there to help them. And members of the search and rescue community have been required rescue when they've been out recreating on their own time. Uh, but again, they're not, they're unpaid. Uh, they're getting called out at all hours of the night. We saw with the, um, the incidents that occurred in, at the start of winter, the, right around the holidays, um, you know, they're, they're, they're dropping what they're doing. They're leaving their workplaces, many school teachers, small business owners, mountain guides, um, covers the gambit. And they, they go out there and they hike for hours into the backcountry and oftentimes adverse conditions to help us and and carrying a litter out over that terrain in the White Mountains is not easy and takes a lot of people to do it. And again, 
seeking no recognition whatsoever. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And it goes to one of the things I've said uh, about New Hampshire for a long time is we have so many world-class athletes and skill levels here from the top of Everest to cycling to surfing, like, and in general, very humble about it. You can be hanging with these people and never know. It, which, that's I, And I think it goes back to what you said earlier. I think that's what makes New Hampshire this awesome place because there is a, there is a humility. You see it. I think we... I think you see it in the political arena. I think you see it um, at the local level. I think, you see, as you said, with athletes and just all of us going about our day-to-day stuff. It's I, I love the humility that, that exists here. Well, obviously, Ty, we could talk for a very long time. Let's we keep can, going. <laughs> we can barely finish. I love it. And, uh, you know, it's inspiring to me. It really is. And uh, it's an important topic. Uh, and what you're doing you know, at the school level, you know, keep doing it, man. That's, that, that strikes home. And for kids to see somebody doing what you're doing, accomplishing what you're doing, uh, it's great. I I applaud that. Oh, thank you very much. And I just want to say back to you, your portfolio and, and just everything that you've done, whether it's in the backcountry or the projects that we talked about that you're working on before this started, I, I, I really admire, and I was really humbled to be invited here to to be on the podcast and I wish you all the best with this. I think it's awesome to be bringing New Hampshire voices out there and, and just um, putting a spotlight on, on some of the good things that are happening in the state. There's a lot of awesome people out there Absolutely. in this population of 1.3 or so million. So. <laughs> we love it. And of course, this is the 603 podcast. I'm Dan Egan with Ty Gagne. Thanks for listening. The 603 podcast is sponsored by Mad River Coffee Roasters. Your adventure starts and stops here. MadRiverCoffeeRoasters.com Waterville Valley Resort. New Hampshire's family resort. WaterviveValley.com Jeans Playhouse in Lincoln, New Hampshire. Check out their summer schedule at JeansPlayhouse.com And Ski Fanatics. Your one-stop shop for year-round adventure at SkiFanatics.net Follow us on Instagram at 603podcast. The 603 Podcast is recorded at Studio Lab in Derry, New Hampshire. Produced by Sammy Blair. I'm Dan Egan. Thanks for listening. The 603 Podcast is sponsored by Mad River Coffee Roasters. Your adventure starts and stops here. MadRiverCoffeeRoasters.com Waterville Valley Resort. New Hampshire's family resort. WaterviveValley.com Jeans Playhouse in Lincoln, New Hampshire. Check out their summer schedule at jeansplayhouse.com and Ski Fanatics, your one-stop shop for year-round adventure at skifanatics.net. Follow us on Instagram at 603podcast. The 603podcast is recorded at Studio Lab in Derry, New Hampshire, produced by Sammy Blair. I'm Dan Egan. Thanks for listening.